All right, if you would, turn to the Bible to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, that's where we're at. And I'm, I'm glad that we're here today, glad that you all are here today, and I hope uh, that you're ready. Today's sermon is not going to be one of, the, one of the best, but I tell you what, this passage at the second half of chapter 2 is one of the most important, all right? This is without a doubt James's most important message in his book of five chapters, all right? This is a passage that you absolutely need to know, and so I'm glad that you're here. I hope that many of you are joining us online. It will be, uh, it is live, and it will be recorded later. I mean, it will be posted later as it is recorded, and, and I hope that many people will hear today from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I remember the first time that I ever went on an overseas mission trip. I loved it. I was hooked right away. And now I try to go as often as I can. Didn't get to go anywhere this year in 2020. All of those trips have been canceled, and so we're not able to. But I still love going. And I remember the first time I went, one of the things that struck me about it is that when you get into a third world country, there are people everywhere, especially in the cities. There are people all over the streets, and you pull up to a stoplight, and there will be people there uh, you know, doing, a, doing a show for you. There will be people out there doing gymnastics for you and doing cartwheels and juggling. And, and then as soon as you stop, they'll come to your window, and they're selling all sorts of things. They, you can get an orange. You can get an apple. You can get a banana. You can get a new pair of shoes. You can get a car charger. You can get anything right there. You don't have to stop at the store in a third world country. They're going to sell you everything that you need right there at the red light. And then as soon as it turns green, psh, they spread out and you just keep going, right? It really is that way. I can't exaggerate uh, how true that is. I remember one time, man, I, I found a guy that had a, a Rolex for about $8. Rolex watch. Awesome. Looked so good. I told Val I had to get it. I, I bought that watch. And before we had landed back in the U.S., it had broken. And it already quit working. And I thought it was a good buy, eight bucks, you know, can't go wrong with a fancy watch there. And I thought to myself, man, if this thing lasts me a month, I'll be styling for a month, you know. Didn't last that long, it didn't. You know, it was, it was fake. It wasn't, it wasn't real, you know. And now I kind of get a kick out of it, and every time I'm there, I try to buy me something. I've bought me so many Oakley sunglasses there. You can get a pair of Oakleys for about three or four bucks, and they look so good on you. And, and before you're home, they break too. They say they're polarized, they're not polarized, right? All that kind of stuff, and they're, they're fake. You know what a fake is? A fake is something that says it's this, but it's really not. It says it's a good, manufactured, built watch that's going to tell time for you. And it's not. It's not going to tell time for you. It says that these are sunglasses that will be good for your eyes on a sunny day. And they're not. They're, they're not good for you. They're fake. You know, as I was thinking about this, I realized there's a lot of fake stuff out there, isn't there? Fake clothes. Fake purses. I remember being a kid when my dad brought home my, my mom. One of those really, really, really fancy purses. Big name purse. And he wouldn't tell her where he got it or how he got it or how much he paid for it and all that. It was a fake purse, fake shoes, fake tools, fake body parts these days, fake jewelry, fake IDs. Oh, man, I remember being a senior in high school. That was when our driver's license were just laminated, right, and they got wet. You could peel off the lamination. Y'all remember that? 
Everybody had a fake ID back then. You could slide a different picture inside of that and relaminate it. Fake IDs, fake money, right? I remember we were over at PickPack the other day trying to pay, and right there on the counter they had a picture of a fake $20 bill that somebody had paid with. It looked so real, but they knew that it was a fake. There's fake money out there. These days we've even got fake news. I'm sure you've heard of that. Seems like there's a lot of fake stuff these days. You've got to make sure that it's the real thing. But you know what God says? A lot of fake people. A lot of fake Christians. They say that they are of God, but they're not. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. They say they believe, but they don't truly believe. They are not what they say they are. This bothers James. This gets at the very nerve of James, that he does not want this to be the case. He does not want God to be misrepresented. He does not want God to be seen as something that he is not. This bothers James. James doesn't want somebody to have a false security. He doesn't want you to think that you're okay if you're not okay. He doesn't want you to say you have peace if you really don't have peace. He doesn't want a fake comfort in your life. He wants God and his mercy, God and his grace, God and his love, God and the forgiveness of sins that he gives only through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son to be the comfort in your soul. And when we look for anything else to be our comfort other than the blood of Jesus shed for us, we are on our way to being misled and confused and falsely comforted. And if we are living that way with a profession, then we are perhaps fake. Now, one of the weird things about us saying that there are fake Christians or fake believers is that it's really hard to handle it. It's really hard to deal with it. Because we want to be kind and understanding and patient. We're all in a... Uh, we're all in a different spot in our walk with the Lord, right? Some of us have been Christians for a long time. Some of us have been Christians for just a little bit. Some of us are just getting started. Some of us have had some pretty smooth lives and not too many setbacks. Some of us have had some really, really hard lives with some major setbacks. We're all in different spots, right? And so we've got to extend grace and understanding toward people so that we encourage them to keep trusting in Christ. But... Along that way, we must know that some people are faking it. So it is our responsibility through, listen, teaching, discipleship, the Word of God, accountability, church discipline, to do all that we can in each other's lives to help you not be fake. We don't want the world to see you as a fake believer. We don't want the world to see our church as a bunch of fake Christians. And we certainly don't want the world to think wrongly of God because of those who profess him not reflecting him accurately. This is the very thing at James's heart that bothers him. Read with me from chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the passage in the Bible, in the New Testament, that says faith without works is dead. This is the go-to passage, if you will, among many others, because there are lots. This is the go-to passage on the balance of faith and works. Now, we've called this series, this study in James, Faith Works, so that we would hold that tension well, so that we would understand that faith and works go together, that they are meant to be understood together, that the Bible talks a lot about that, that we would never, ever lose our sight, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, by Christ alone, right? That we are saved by faith alone, even though James says here that you're saved by faith and works. We, we want to understand that, okay? And what James does here is he starts with a couple questions, big questions, right? What good is it? If you have faith that doesn't have works, what good is that? And his answer would be, it's not good. Then he asks another question. Can that faith save him? Is a professed faith without any works and obedience with it a saving faith? To which his answer is understood to be no. He asks again in verse 16, what good is that? It's not good. And so we are to hear here from the beginning that James just pointed out early on that a faith without a life that goes with it, right? Without a obedience or without a works that go along with it, without an effort, is troubling. It is problematic. It raises questions. James says it's not good. And so here today, I want to do a couple things. I want to see what we can identify here about a faith that does not save, a faith that does not save, and then let's look at a faith that does save. Faith that saves, all right? And hopefully, by God's grace and mercy and spirit working in in us today, even as we listen, that we would sit here and we would say, man, I want my faith to be real. God, search the inside of me. Open up the eyes of my heart. Convict me of my sin. Help me to know that I am truly believing you. Go to work on me, God, that my faith would be a saving faith, that I would not be fake, that my faith would not be fake. All right, so let's look at a few things. Faith that does not save. Now, 
James's point here is that there is a belief which is not true faith. Okay? James's point here is that there is a belief of faith that's not really a true faith. Okay? So not all Christians are truly Christian, right? And that's what we make of all these polls because every day that we turn on the news or we look at the, the internet or something, they're always giving us these new statistics and these new polls about how many evangelicals believe this and how many evangelicals believe that. We hear that stuff all the time to which it really means very little to me because I go back going, those people aren't believers. They might have checked the box that said they're believers. The news might think they're believers. But most of these people are not believers. Now, obviously, there is a category of a very under-discipled, immature believer that is truly saved that just doesn't know what they believe. But you know what I'm saying. We're getting at the heart of the matter. Not all Israel is Israel. Not everybody says he's a child of God is a child of God. Not everybody that believes actually believes. And so that's what we're looking at here. Well, let's make two observations. The first is that fake faith may talk a certain way. It may talk a lot. It may say good things. Notice here that this is what James points out. In verse 14, he says, if someone says he has faith. Does everybody see the word says right there in verse 14? He's talking about somebody who says that they believe. James does not think that they believe, but they say they believe. Does everybody see that? So will that be a light bulb turning on right now in your life that everybody that says they believe doesn't necessarily believe? Everybody that says they have faith doesn't necessarily do. Talk is cheap. And sometimes what we say about our faith doesn't really mean that we're believing. There's a lot of people out there that aren't right. A lot of people out there that are misled. A lot of people out there that are truly faking it, right? And James says, if somebody says they have faith, do you everybody see the word says? Well, we have it again in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, there's the word again, says. So James goes to work on the things that we say that try to make us sound like we are Christian and it's not necessarily pointing out that we are Christians. Everybody see that? Just because somebody says things, says Christian things, says good things, doesn't mean that they're truly believing. In Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ teaching himself, the passage that Matt McBroom read just a little bit ago, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Does everybody hear that? The very word says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you say it does not mean it. Now, why is this so hard for us? It is hard. It's very, very hard. Hard for us to process. Because Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? All you have to do is confess to be saved, right? For with the 
heart one believes and with the mouth one confesses and is justified, Romans says. We know we are confessional people, right? We love a testimony, right? Have you prayed the prayer? Have you said it? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? When we baptize people, we ask them, what is your profession of faith? And they say, I believe that Jesus is Lord, right? And we know that there is a huge element of Christianity, confessional, professional Christianity that says... We speak what we believe. And if you say it, then the Bible says God will save you. But what we also know, Jesus teaches us, is that anything that comes out of our mouth is supposed to come off of our heart. And at times, and we are all guilty of this, there are things that come, off of, come out of our mouth that we wish we had not said. And there are things that come out of our mouth that we hate that we said. And there are things that come out of our mouth that we didn't want to say, right? And there are things that come out of our mouth that we really didn't believe. We say the right things, we say the wrong things, we say things that, right? That's how our mouths are. And so not everyone who calls Jesus Lord really believes that he's Lord. Jesus says, you call me Lord, and he means, but I'm not your Lord. Yes, I am the Lord, but I'm not your Lord based off the way your heart feels about me because the way your heart believes is the way your life goes it's not what your mouth says right now notice this there's a ton of uh, power of positive thinking out there that think your words control everything and I'm sure you probably get a daily text or email from somebody who's always telling you speak it into being right because so many of you all get caught up in that but it's not true it's not what Jesus says Jesus says our words often reveal where our heart is, but you know what actually controls your life? Your heart. What you really want to do, you will do. Where your heart really is, is where your treasure really lies, right? That's what Jesus says. Where your heart is. If God has not given you a new heart, then try as you might to say that you love him. You don't really love him. That's why we are so good at excuses. You wouldn't believe how many excuses we're hearing these days in the pandemic, right? Because our heart's not really there. We're trying to get ourselves to come to the point, but we're not. All right? But when your heart really is in the right place, you will go and do the right thing. We will sacrifice. We will do whatever because our heart is in the right place. And so we must recognize that just what we say does not necessarily mean what we are. God help us with this. God help us with this. That we would not be fake based off of what we say. But another observation here is, so fake faith may talk a certain way, but secondly, fake faith may feel a certain way. It may feel a certain way. Look, look what happens here. When James is asking all these questions at the beginning, he comes back to another illustration. And this is now the second time that he's done this. And his illustration, again, speaks about a poorly clothed person. He already did that, right? You remember earlier in chapter 2, the sermon from last week on partiality. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So in his illustration there, it's a poor person in shabby clothing. And now his illustration here, chapter 2, verse 15, it's a brother or sister. So in that earlier passage, we didn't know if they were a believer. But here, he is talking about a believer, brother or sister in Christ, that's poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, all right? So there's somebody that you know trusts Christ potentially is a part of your church in your life you know them you see them you should care for them 
and you know that they are in need. Specifically, it talks about how they look poorly clothed. And then it says specifically that they are lacking in daily food. They're not asking for you to pay their cable bill. They're not asking for you to go buy them new basketball shoes because they need the new ones. They need food to eat today and tomorrow. That's the example James gives. And look what he says. And one of you says to them, so that was the first point, words, but now we're talking about feeling. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. Now I'm pointing out fake faith may feel a certain way because this person has somewhat of a good feeling toward them. They wish them well. They hope they, it all works out for them. They hope life comes together. They hope they find fortune, and they hope that tomorrow is a better day, and they hope that things work out in the end, and they hope that somebody out there is going to have mercy on them and give them some food. This is a really, really hard illustration for us to hear. It's not mine, it's James's. A brother or sister in Christ. This is not somebody that walks up to you in a parking lot that scares you to death and says they have a need. Can you help them right there on the spot without knowing anything of their situation? I don't necessarily know what you do with that, okay? You trust the Lord, you use wisdom, sometimes it's yes, and sometimes you better run. I'm talking about a brother or sister in Christ that's really in need for daily food. And we just wish them well. We feel a certain way to them, but we do not help them. And James is good. James is not going to let us leave church on Sundays feeling good about ourselves. James wants us to leave church on a Sunday being thankful for Jesus. Do you notice the difference there? Church is not a place where you come to feel good about yourself. Church is a place where you stop thinking about yourself and start thinking a whole lot about Jesus. That's what church is supposed to be. And James is doing a good job at getting at that. Well, so you feel toward this person, right? And you say things like, peace, be warmed and filled. Now think about how nice that sounds. Peace, warmed and filled. That sounds so nice, does it not? But think about how shallow and empty it is if you're not creating peace for them, warming them up, or filling them up, right? Think about that. Sounds awesome. Makes you feel good as soon as you turn your back and go your direction. But they're left still empty. And James says, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is it really if we pat ourselves on the back because we feel good toward a need or toward a situation, but we have not sought to meet the need? What good is it? And James comes with that big question and says it's not good. And so, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, a lot of people, don't miss the word dead, a lot of people think that James is battling between faith and works. He's not. Now, obviously, those are the big words there. But this, this passage is not a lot about faith and works and the tension that we have there. This passage is actually about a living faith and a dead faith, and you have those words too. Notice the difference. 
It's not about faith and works. The conversation in the Bible is not about, okay, are you saved by faith or are you saved by works? That's what religious people try to turn it into. It's not. The Bible never really gets caught up in that. It really never does. The Bible gets caught up from the beginning to the end, what does real faith look like? And the answer to what does saving, living faith look like is always, it has works with it. Now, can you think of situations where there weren't works? Of course, right? You got the thief on the cross who died right beside Jesus who went to heaven. Did he do any good works? Well, not necessarily. Maybe other than telling the other thief to shut up and believe, right? Something like that. You might call that a good work. And everybody that knew that guy probably thought that he died and went to hell because he was crucified there as a criminal, and so they probably didn't know. But what Bible wants us to know, what James wants us to know, is that if that thief had come down off the cross and somehow been spared, you know what would have followed in his life if he was truly believing? Good works. There would have been works. Because when God gives faith, living, saving faith, it is accompanied by good works. And so the issue is not faith and works, which one saves, which one's better, which one's more valuable. That's not it. And I really hope that we're seeing that. The issue is, what is real faith? What's a living faith versus a dead faith? And if you know your Bible, then you know that the Bible often speaks about dead faith. The Bible calls us dead people. In Ephesians 2, it is said twice, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it is said twice that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. You know that. We are dead. And the thing about death is that it's not able to respond. It's not able to do anything. It's not able to be nice. It's not able to give food. It's not able to be kind. It's not able to forgive. It's not able to obey dead people as obvious as it is to state the obvious, can't do good. They can't. And dead faith can't either. This is James's point. So profess all you want to, confess all you want to, say you believe all you want to. If your faith is dead, there's a reason why you don't have good works. And let's go backwards. If you don't have good works, you're not trying to do good works, you don't want to obey, then we will go backwards and say, even though you say you have faith, that's a dead faith, according to James. Now, obviously, it sounds black and white here, and you start living your lives, you start looking around, you start looking at people in your own life, you start looking in the mirror, it's complicated and messy. It's not as black and white as it appears to be. But the way God wants us to live our lives is to dig deep into his word, get into this, read it, study it, mark it up, highlight, right, wrestle with it, look at all these different things, and then go out and live and help people see what it means to truly trust in Christ, what it means to be a Christian. What do Christians really look like? What do they believe? What do they do? How do they act, right? We are to study the word to understand that and then go and see, are we Christian? Are we Christ-like? Are we of God? There is such a thing as a dead faith. So when we say a fake faith or a faith that does not save, we are, we are actually getting at a faith that's not alive. A faith that's not driven by the power of God. A faith that did not have repentance of sins, response to belief, the Holy Spirit working and changing us on the inside with a new heart that wants to go and love God, that that wasn't there. It may say certain things that sound good. It may feel a certain way that sounds good. But it is not a saving faith. James says it's dead. 
But then he goes on to explain more, and this is the second half of the sermon, that faith that saves real faith. Commentator Robertson says, One must not think that James discredits faith. He doesn't do that. James assumes the need of true faith in order to be alive, in order to live with good works. So look at verse 18. Here he goes. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So they're trying to compare the two and say which one is better. Now this quote right here in verse 18 is actually very common in your lives. I hope you have conversations with people. This is one that comes up a lot. This comes up a lot. Well, I'm a better person than you. I try hard. I'm more concerned about this than you are. I'm trying to obey more. I'm trying to make a difference more. I care more about these needs in the world. I care more about these needs in the world. I'm doing, you know, you get into that. I always get a kick out of it that uh, at Christmas time when you see the Salvation Army ringing the bells outside of all the stores. And I'm, I mean, I'm a fan of Salvation Army. I like anybody who really tries to help. But their slogan is doing the most good. Have you noticed that? They got a sign up that says doing the most good. And I thought, well... Do they really think they're doing more good than, than other agencies? There's a lot of good agencies out there in the world, right? Do we have statistics on who's doing the most good? And I always thought it was a little bit odd that they would boast that they're doing the most because there's a lot of people out there doing a lot. You get into this conversation about which one's more, which one's, which one's better. You say you believe, and this is what it does to your life. Well, I don't necessarily believe, but I have works, and this is what it's doing to my life. And you say the faith saves you. I say the works save you, right? This is what James brings up, and it's a really good talking point. He says then, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And here we go. The dead faith is not able to say, here's how I know I'm believing because here's what God is working in me. The dead faith can't say that. It says it believes but doesn't have any proof, if you want to use that word. And James is willing to go there. Remember the quote in verse 18, mine has quotation marks, is what somebody else says. But then James in verse 18 says, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, he's saying it's really hard for you to prove that you're really believing and saved by that faith if it doesn't seem like your life has been changed by it, altered by it, built by it, established by it. It doesn't seem that way. But what I want to be able to say, James says, is that the very thing I'm believing is working in me. The power of God has come into me and there's a difference. And so this brings up the whole thing of the difference between the root and the fruit. And I hope you've heard this before. A lot of our small group Bible study sessions, I feel like we get to this uh, teaching point a lot, but if you've never heard this, there is a huge difference between the root and the fruit of a plant or a tree. Don't you know that? Oh, I hope that you do. If you have a tree out in your backyard that is an apple tree, right, there are some times where there are not apples on it. And guess what? You can still know that it's an apple tree, right? Because you either planted it there or you remember from last year that it had apples or something like that. And knowing really and truly, deep down, literally, in the dirt, not seen, at its core, it is an apple tree. And so whenever it comes time to bear fruit, guess what it will be? Apples. Everybody understand that? So more important than the fruit is the root. Now, you can't identify that it's an apple tree by the fruit, but you can way, 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 way long before there's fruit know what kind of a tree it is because of the root. Everybody understand that? 
heard a story one time of a grandpa that was doing his garden, and he had his grandson with him, and it was nice, nice time, and I hope some of you grandparents do that too. I hope you still plant a garden. If you do, share the okra with us. We love fried okra, and I hope that you get your grandchildren along, and you show them what it means to garden too, and I heard a story that they were planting corn, and they were planting tomatoes, planting both, and so they'd, they'd do a row, and the grandpa wearing his overalls was going, and he has a little grandson with him, and he he plant, plant the seed down in there and, you know, build a little mound around it. And the grandson said, Grandpa, what, what's going to grow up right there? He said, son, grandson, that's going to be corn right there. He said, how do you know it's going to be corn? He said, well, we planted corn, corn seeds right there. Went, went another one and planted another one right here. And he planted another one. And grandson said, Grandpa, what's going to grow up right there? He said, well, that's going to be corn right there. And he said, how do you know it's going to be corn right there? He said, well, we planted corn seed right there, you know. And this went on and on and on. And the kid was amazed that he knew what was going to grow up, even though it was just a seed in the dirt. And the story goes on that the grandpa reaches down into his overalls and pulls out one of those little New Testaments. I love a farmer that carries a Bible on him. And he turned his grandson to Galatians chapter 6 where it says, God says a man reaps what he sows. Hey, what you put there is what will come out. That's a principle in the Bible. If you plant corn seeds, there is only, only, only corn that will grow up. There is not a chance in the world that it ends up producing tomatoes. You understand that? Because what is at the root determines what will be the fruit. This is very consistent with what the Bible says. If at your root in your core, in your spirit, soul, your heart, God has changed you, made you alive, forgiven you of your sins, broken you down to where you have literally cried out to him and said, God, I need you. God, help me. God, forgive me, rescue me, redeem me, be near to me, save my soul. If God has done that work inside of you, then that new living hope, that faith that he has created inside of you, that is the gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast, that that Jesus Christ spirit living inside of you will change you on the inside and it will start to change you on the outside. And that living Faith starts to bear works. Now, is it complicated? Like sometimes we still disobey and sometimes we're a mess and sometimes we fall away and sometimes we need to repent? Of course it is. But the direction of our life and what our true desire is has fundamentally changed. And so, just in the same way that if you thought you planted corn there and it's a tomato plant that grew up, guess what? Guess what? You didn't actually plant corn there. You got it wrong and your seeds had got all mixed together and you must have planted a tomato plant there, right? And so if you do not love God and you do not want to obey God and you have no desire to repent of your sins and get right and cast yourself on the mercy of God, then maybe we need to analyze that this faith that you say you have is not really alive. It is a dead faith. It is not working in you. And so James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James gets to the root and the fruit. Verse 19, he gets very strong. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Good job. Proud of you, he says. That's great. But even the demons believe and shudder. 
That's a good teaching point for us. A big word comes up called orthodox, which means to believe the right things. And while there is a lot to be said about orthodoxy, it's a whole lot better than heresy. We will admit that. Orthodoxy is better than heresy. We must admit that orthodoxy in and of itself, believing the right things, does not save you. Just because you say yes to all the things that I say, just because you've walked forward or checked a box or been in the baptismal waters, or just because you say that you're Christian or have a Bible or all of these things, does not mean that your faith is alive. Is God in you? Is he working in you? Has the Spirit gone to work? And James pulls no punches. He doesn't even go so far to talk about you identifying with the unbelievers. He doesn't go so far to say that you're a hypocrite. He identifies people who say they believe without works with the demons. What an insult. What an insult. Oh, you say you believe? Okay, great. You do well. Well, guess who else does? Satan's soldiers. Satan's servants, the demons in the world, those who are trying to destroy you, those who who come to steal, kill, and destroy, that want you to die and go to hell. They want you to stay in your sins. They don't want you bowing down at the cross. They don't want you crying out. They hate words like repentance and brokenness and apologies. They hate the idea of forgiveness. They hate the empty tomb and the bloody cross. They hate those things, and they want to keep you far away from those. They want you looking in the mirror and sticking out your chest. They want you praying like the Pharisee who says, Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. I thank you, God, that I'm not as jacked up as all these other people in the world. I thank you, God, I do this. I go to church three times a week, and I tithe, and I do all of that. He wants us like the Pharisee, and the demons don't want us like the tax collector that stood far off, couldn't even lift up his head, beat his chest, and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The demons don't want us like this. They want us like the Pharisee. And James here says, oh, you say you believe? Okay, you do well. You're like the demons. The demons are orthodox. They know everything right about Jesus. The Bible says that so many times. And the demons know everything. they got great theology. The devil has great theology. Believes Jesus. Knows it. But you know what? It doesn't respond with tenderness and brokenness. It doesn't run to the feet of Jesus and cry out, forgive me. It, 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 it shudders. It sticks its hair up. It sticks its chest out. It pushes back. It says, I don't believe it. I hate it. I can't stand it. I'm going to oppose it till the end. There are people that say they believe, but then live in opposition to God. They identify more with a demon in practice than with a true believer. Now, they say all the right things at times, like the demons do, but they're not. This is a problem. So then he says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Now this is where James goes that creates all the problem. James starts talking about Abraham. Well, in our Bibles, in the book of Romans, Paul, the apostle, uses Abraham as the elite example of salvation by faith alone. In Romans chapter 4, this Abraham is the example of being saved by faith only, faith without works, as what saves. And here lies the big tension. 
Many people have said that James and Paul don't agree. Well, remember I told you the very first week that James is the first book written in the New Testament, right? So James is saying all of this and writing this letter, not think not thinking at all about what Paul wrote to the Romans, not thinking at all about what Paul wrote to the Galatians that really pick up on this subject. James is thinking about his audience and people who are caught up in being uh, good works and caught up in not being saved saved by faith and losing the biblical understanding of faith and works together, of the root and the fruit and a living faith. James is speaking to people that don't understand that, and so you have this problem. But there really is no problem. You're saved by faith alone in Christ. And when God saves you, that living faith produces now a life of works. Commentator Hughes says, However, there is no real contradiction between James and Paul regarding faith. For Paul's teaching about faith and works focuses on the time before conversion. That's Paul's. And James focuses on after conversion. As Douglas Moo has pointed out, Paul denies any efficacy to pre conversion works. Paul was fighting against tradition which promoted a false works salvation. James was fighting against a light faith which minimized the necessity of works after coming to Christ. Paul says works cannot bring us to Christ, and they can't. James says after we come to Christ, they are a must. They are imperative. They both teach the same thing. They are emphasizing Different things. Or, let me say it like this. Those that think James has said something that isn't consistent with our Bibles. James looks upon the works as proof of faith, not as means of salvation. John the Baptist had demanded fruits worthy of repentance. You remember that, right? John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. Paul will discuss Death to sin on the part of the believer in Romans 6. Peter will show how the life will make the calling and election sure in 2 Peter. The whole epistle to the Hebrews is a clarion call to hold fast the confession of faith to the end. John will insist that those who say they are in the light do not walk in darkness. Certainly then, James is in harmony with the full drift of the gospel message in his insistence on works as proof of the new life. When we insist on obedience and faithfulness and good works, we are not saying that we are self-righteous, or we are not saying that you have to earn anything. We are saying that the evidence or the proof of God working in us is our response to what he's doing in us. And as I've said every sermon with James, at times, that is our humility and our walking backwards and our getting on our knees and our apologizing and our repentance. It is such a beautiful, godly, good work. When you shut your mouth, bow your knee, and say, God, forgive me of my sins. I was wrong. That's a beautiful, good work. The repentant life, the repentant heart that looks to Christ as the risen Savior that died for our sins is displaying obedience by turning away from sin in the world and turning to God the Savior. 
Commentator Hughes says, the inconsistency, listen to this, between what one claims to be and what one actually is, is typical of those outside of Christ. Now, I don't mean for us to be judgmental about them. I don't mean like, man, they're liars. They say they're not liars, but I don't mean that. I think what he means here is we tend to think we're better than we are, and we tend to think that we're not as bad as we are. The reality is is that anybody in the world that thinks they're good and God's going to receive them off of that is completely wrong. The Bible says nobody's good except God alone. And the reality is is that anybody in the world that thinks they're not that bad and so God's going to receive them because on the scale they've got more good than bad is completely wrong, right? Because the wages of sin is death. And as James said in the last passage, if if you've broken God's law in one point, you're guilty of all of it, right? And so what it is, is this inconsistency of viewing ourselves in the eyes of God according to the truth of God is really a characteristic of those outside of Christ. This is not the way the church is to be. We want to be consistent. We want to say, hey, I'm worse than you realize. I'm not as good as you think I am. I'm more needy of Christ than I've shown. I'm more convicted of my sins than you might recognize. I need Jesus. And I didn't come to church today to feel good about myself. I came to church today hoping, Josh, that you would point me to Christ the Savior, that I'd be reminded of the cross, I'd be reminded of the tomb, I'd be reminded that Jesus is alive, and I would throw all of my hope on him. That's who I am, that's the Savior, that's the truth, and that's what I believe. That's what we are to be like. We are not to get caught up in ourselves. It cannot, and it should not be with the church that we are inconsistent. Now, we can sin all we want to. Did you know that? The church can sin all that we want to. You can. God says that by giving us new hearts that you don't want to. Have you heard that before? You can go sin all you want to. Let's dismiss here in just a few minutes, and y'all go out and let's live it up, right? Go sin all you want to. You are free to do that in Christ. The problem is Jesus says when he saved you, he gave you a new heart that does not want to. So there's a good test. And if you want to, if you hear that and you're like, heck yeah, let's go do it, right? Then there's a sign that your heart's not in the right place. Christians are bothered by their sins. We're convicted. We repent. We apologize, right? We must labor as a church and as Christians to walk the walk as we talk the talk. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there. Just listen to me real quickly. Is that famous passage I've already quoted a little bit that says this in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know that passage, don't you? We love that. Grace through faith, not by works. We love it. We're saved by faith alone. But look at what verse 10 says. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good The very language that Paul wrestles with, the very language that James wrestles with, here we have him saying that God saved you by faith, and in saving you by faith, he saved you so that you would go and do good works. And we are never, ever to get that confused. One is the fruit, one is the root. Now, there is a phrase that I hear a lot, and we'll close with this. I hear it all the time, mostly because I get to be at a lot of funerals, I hear a lot of people say, like, 
I hope I'm good enough to make it to heaven. I don't know how many more years I got left. I hope I'm getting my act together, right? Hope I can straighten myself up that I'll, that I'll make it there, right? Now, if you're just meaning that as a little talking point and just trying to show some humility that you're not all that great and you know, all of that, then I get it. We've got no problem with that. But if you really think, if you really think that you've got to clean your act up to get to heaven, you're misunderstanding. You're misunderstanding. You need to believe Jesus. You need to trust him. You need to cry out to him and seek forgiveness from him, and he will give it. And when he does, he will change your inside to want to live for him. This is what James says a living faith is. And if we don't have that desire in us, James says, our faith is probably dead. If you're here today and you feel fake, if you're here today and you admit your faith is dead, it can be alive right now. Turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for James 2. Thank you, God, for the real faith versus a fake faith. God, help us to not be the person who says nice things, feels nice things. God, help us to be those that turn to you. And then want to go and live it out. God, this is a huge passage for us. Help us to process it. Cause it to go to work inside of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.